Amen. There are times in this weary world when you wonder what on earth God is doing. Or if he is really in charge. Or if he even exists. There are times when life just does not make any sense. And honestly, we would like to demand that God give us an explanation for his decisions. Why has God taken Brad Jameson from us? Why so soon? Why so tragically? And why has God visited upon our church a second such tragedy in less than two years? If we go back even just a bit further, in four years and four months, this congregation by the providence of God, has lost Brandon Fish at age 40, leaving behind a wife and three preschool children. Jim Burgum, who dies in an accident at age 46, leaving behind a wife and two children. Grace Burgum dies in an accident at age 17. And now Brad Jamison dies at age 46, leaving behind two grade school children and a devastated wife. Four years and four months. There are churches twice our size that do not experience half that kind of tragedy in a generation. What is God doing? I've not talked to a believer about this trial outside of our church that hasn't put these things together quite quickly. I heard just yesterday of an unbeliever in this community who heard of this event and asked if our church might not be under a curse. Maybe we are. Or maybe we're just in good company. I seem to remember a certain Job, whose acquaintances were quite sure the only explanation for his suffering was that they were out of favor with God. He was out of favor with God. That's the only explanation there could be. And I'd like us this morning as we filter the trial that is upon us now in light of so much trial that's gone before in such a short time to turn to the book of Job once again and to get started here. Because I believe the book of Job in its development starts us where we need to start. I don't think it finishes for us. There are more questions that need to be addressed, and the Bible addresses many of those questions, but this is where we need to start. 
Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Note it. He feared God, he turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, among this angelic company. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God's assessment of Job is given in verse 8. He's a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's how I read Job, says God. We read of Satan's dismissal. Of course, Job is a good boy. Look at his life. You've encompassed him in a glass bubble. Nothing harmful can touch the man. And so Satan's wager hurt Job, and he will curse you to your face. Now right here, God could tell Satan to take a hike. In other passages of Scripture, he does just that. But not here. And why not? Is the reason that God is really competitive and emotional, and Satan kind of angers God here, pushes just the right buttons, and he decides to show Satan a thing or two at Job's expense? Is that the God of Scripture? No, I think God puts Job in Satan's hand in part for Job's sake. Yes, God has something to show Satan, and God will again glory gain glory for himself here in this affair, but God also has something to accomplish in all of this for Job. 
Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, He didn't have a couple years to get used to this. To deal with the grief and the trial of this. But while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have come. I have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. One heart-wrenching tragedy after another, and Job blesses God. Chapter 2, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them and to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with a loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. His wife calls upon him to curse God. But in all this, verse 10, Job did not sin with his lips. In this overwhelming trial, Job blesses God and speaks not a single word against him. Job recognized that every good gift comes from God and may be taken away justly. 
But what we know, of course, is that Satan is behind all of this, and God is working with Satan, discussing this matter with Satan, and we can hardly hold it together as Job's counselors come to him and insist over and over again that he's under the curse of God. No, we say, you've got to understand what's going on behind closed doors. The closed doors of God's chamber office, we have been granted a peek through the doors and we overheard the conversation with Satan and with God. You don't understand what's going on. It's not that. But we get no such opportunity to object. And for chapter after chapter after chapter, these three counselors beat Job up over and over again with the accusation that he is cursed by God because of his sin. So relentless is their assault that Job begins to lash out at God himself and question why on earth God has treated him so unjustly. He even indicates that God owes him an explanation for all of this. And in the end, the voices of the counselors fall silent, and God shows up. Chapter 38 and verse 1. The first thing that God says is, Stand up like a man, Job. I have some questions to ask you. Question number one in chapter 38 It's found in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Chapters 40 through 42, Job gets the point finally. And he shuts his mouth. But God keeps right on questioning Job. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 7. As the book ends, Job repents forever questioning the justice and the wisdom of God. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Verse 6, we read Job's self-assessment. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is a just man who is speaking. I repent in dust and ashes. One meeting with God, and Job is cured of his questioning spirit. Then, God rebukes Job's friends for misusing Job by pooling their ignorance of the truth. And finally, God reveals the secret to everyone, the secret about the negotiations with Satan, and explains to everyone the whole story, the whole reason why this all happened, explains it all. He doesn't, does he? It's not how the account goes. In the end, God does not offer one word of explanation. The only thing God says is, It's my universe, and I know what I'm doing. Now, obviously, God did reveal the situation between God and Satan to someone, but in the telling of the account, God gives no answer. 
It's often been taught that the theme of Job is why the righteous suffer, and I think that's about the worst possible theme you could put with the book of Job, because that's exactly what it doesn't answer. Yes, we see God and Satan and the whole discussion between them, but we're really given no explanation. What we're given is a great God and the responsibility to trust Him. Now, what point do we draw from this in our own experience? The point is not that Eden Baptist Church is a righteous church and that God is proving our worth to Satan through uncommon suffering. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know what God is doing, but I don't think that's the conclusion that we should come to. The point is that God never owes us an explanation for what He has chosen to do. Never. Some will object with the psalmists and say, well, there are psalmists who speak to God and say, what are you doing, and, and, and seem to demand a question from Him. But we need to remember, these are evidences of honest admission of temptation and doubt and weakness, and they usually resolve in expressions of trust. They are not a fist shaken in the face of God that says, you will answer me. Never. Job's righteousness in the midst of these horrifying trials hinge on two responses. Number one, he blessed God as having the sovereign right to deprive him of any joy at any time that he chooses. Now that's hard. It's a hard word. But we've got to get the adjustment made to know how we're going to relate to the God who runs the universe. He blessed God as having the sovereign right to deprive him of any joy at any time that he chooses. And secondly, he refused to charge God with injustice. I will not do that. It's not until we get these fundamental issues flowing in the right direction that we can proceed to handle tragedy. If we're going to curse God, question God, demand explanations from God, or charge Him with injustice, we will only spin our wheels in a slew of moral despondency, and we will go nowhere in a hurry. I'm not saying that we don't understand people that are in that slew of despondency. I'm not saying that we throw out such questions and give them no time at all. We realize in our sin that these are very honest and earnest questions many times. But that is not the way forward. Having established our footing on this firm ground of God's sovereign right to do as He chooses, we now may proceed to investigate how God counsels us to respond to tragedy. <coughs> We'll look at a number of passages, and I put some of these up on the slides for us that we might just follow through and not turn to every one of them. But we find this principle as we comb Scripture and ask God for His counsel. And the first is this, that God is always in complete control and always working through all circumstances to accomplish His perfect purposes. In Him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose 
of His will. Everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. As we read earlier, who can speak and have it happen? If the Lord has not decreed it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do these things. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Think Monday morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God has a firm hand on the helm of the universe. He is steering the ship, and it will go where He wants it to go. The idea is that not that God is big and mean and does as He wants, and if you get in His way, He'll squash you. Notice what verse 29 says. It is those whom He foreknew that He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what He's up to. Working to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I don't know what that is going to take. I don't run the universe, and I don't know how a soul is brought into the likeness of Christ. I don't know how to do that. I do know that Jesus went through an awful lot of pain before finishing His course. As Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. If God's redemptive purposes include conforming His people to the image of Jesus, and if Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered, it might be reasonable to conclude that we are going to face some suffering in this world as well. I'm being conformed into the one who learned obedience through suffering. Are we cursed? Are we cursed as a church? God's Word speaks so plainly. Jesus bore the full curse of God's wrath against His people. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, He was made a curse for us. For every child of God, there is no condemnation, Romans 8 and verse 1. None. Not in this life and not in the next life. The curse has been paid by Christ. Discipline in this life? Yes. Condemnation? No. Jesus paid that in full and we walk in His grace. He is always fully engaged in working with infinite wisdom and unmitigated power 
for our sanctification through all things. He is bringing us to be like Christ through the trials that we face. The condemnation is gone. The curse is removed. And that realization should transform how we look at suffering. The reason someone would ask, is your church under a curse, is because they don't know Christ. They don't understand what he did. And they don't understand what he's doing. But as we come to understand who he is, what he has done to pay the penalty of our sin, we come to understand what suffering is doing in our life. We know then that God is sovereign, ruling over all things, bringing them all together to fulfill his purposes. And we know, secondly, that God uses suffering to strengthen our faith. He tells us this very pointedly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We rejoice, writes Paul to the Romans, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and and character produces hope. Weak? My grace, said the Lord to Paul, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I do not know why our assembly has suffered two tragic car accidents in less than two years. And others have died as well. It's just as heart-wrenching in some respects, but these so tragic, so unexpected so seemingly putting us under the curse to those who would watch from the outside. I don't know why. But God has told us this much. Let's put a stake in this deep. He is using these trials to strengthen our faith in God and to develop in us character, endurance, hope, strength, and spiritual maturity. He has told us, this is what I'm doing by my grace and because of my love for you. I don't know why it is this way, but we know what he's doing. And the temptation, I think, is to consider that, you know, maybe I'm really not all that interested in such development. I'd really rather forego the lessons, God. This is hard. We may say that because we're not God's child. That's one possibility. But if it is just weakness in you that wants to avoid the discipline of a growing faith, please know that a day is coming 
when your heart will overflow with unspeakable joy as God's sanctifying purposes are completed in you. It's just a matter of time. Hear his word to us. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think for the most part we take a statement like that and it sort of just falls off of us because it's hard to filter this slight and momentary affliction but if we hear it as God's word to us he's saying you don't understand the glory that is to come For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the sons of God. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's doing this. And all the travails that we suffer in this life are serving this purpose of God to transform us eternally into the likeness of Christ. It's not that our sufferings are saving us. Christ's sufferings save us. But through these sufferings, we enter into the suffering that Christ has done in our behalf. And in that way, God transforms us through pain. We do not know precisely how God uses the trials of life to grow us, but when that process is completed in glory, we will never despise one moment of suffering we had to endure in this world. Not at all. Now it's hard. Throughout all eternity, it will be glory. He's telling us this. Now, if we haven't gotten through Job, none of this is going to make any sense. If we're still at the place of putting a finger in God's face and saying, you give me an explanation for how this works, we can't get here. But if we can trust the hand of God to run the universe as he has chosen and to conform us into the likeness of Christ through his sanctifying power in the trials of life, we can pull up a chair next to him as he puts his arm around us and tells us this trial is building you. It's making you. It's deepening you. It's bringing you forward in some strange way. And with that, how I rejoice, how we can thank God that he uniquely comforts his children who suffer. He's in this with us. He tells us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, writes Paul, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
We learn in Romans 8 that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We have no God that doesn't care. We have here the communion between Father and Son aching for us in our trial and in our difficulty. And Christ so fitted for this role, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need that mercy. Christ provides it. And so the trial brings us to Him. There is little need for comfort when you live in a tragedy-free world. But when believers suffer genuine trial, we have the assurance that God actively ministers unique grace to us. This passage... This is the only reason I've got any hope to walk into the Jameson's home in the future and to face Darcy and those girls. It is the only hope that I had walking up those steps on Monday morning. Without this, I say, you're on your own. Find a bottle somewhere, run away, hit a tree. I don't know what you're going to do with this, but let me out of here. I don't have anything to say. We have a Savior who intercedes and who understands. There is hope in this. And this grace, I believe, will be ministered to this family. We bank on it. We trust in it. Although Brad's death is so painful to us as a church, and although we are not as strong a church without him in some respects, his death has put us in the crosshairs of the Son's intercessory work and the Father's comfort. We'd all choose for this not to have happened, but it has. And because of that, I believe God is uniquely considering our sorrow at this very moment. And in that we take hope. As we branch out, this may seem to be in a completely different trajectory, but I don't think that it is. Let me just add this further point, that God teaches us with the example of those who have entered eternity before us. Number four, God teaches us with the example of those who have entered eternity before us. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews 13 and verse 7. <coughs> Hebrews 13 and verse 7. The author of Hebrews writes to these struggling Christians. Hebrews 13, 7. I'd like us all to think on this verse, but children, please look at this carefully.
Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You notice the word spoke in the past tense. Contextually, probably leaders referring to specifically elders, deacons, leaders of that sort in the assembly. But I think the principle can be applied to other kinds of leaders as well. And I think from the angle of our children in this church, how pointed this application is. Remember your leaders who once spoke the word of God. Notice the outcome of Brad's way of life. And I think all of us would agree that know him, that that outcome of life has crystallized quite a bit since his death. Brad was no flashy in-front guy. It took a little bit to get below the surface and see behind the scenes and realize what a force for God he really was. He was a humble servant who labored faithfully week after week in the trenches. And the area of life that God seemed to assign, the area of ministry that God seemed to assign to Brad Jameson was in the area of discipling the next generation. He served as a Sunday school teacher, along with Darcy, who found it easy to teach. Brad didn't. That's why they taught together. He didn't take as many turns, but he was always in there with the kids. And about every third week, delivered the lesson to them. Now when it came to Wednesday night kids club and game time, then he was in his element. He was ready for that at all times. For years, he's played games with kids in the back. We talked about that at men's breakfast over and over again. He's not there because he likes games, though he did. He's there because he's striving to influence children for Christ. And he did. He used that game setting and the times in the halls on Wednesday night to connect with children. And he grew into a discipler of the next generation. We watched it happen, and it happened so slowly almost imperceptibly, that I think in some respects it is now at this point a shock that he's gone. This was a big man, an all-man, in every sense of the word. This was a big man at six foot two who bent down and greeted children. I hope in our church that that's common but you know, that's not very common in this world for adults to greet children. And not only greet them, but tease them, play with them, joke around with them, and get close to them, and break down the barriers of resistance and the fear that is there naturally. Not only tease them. There's guys who can always be funny with kids, but Brad exhorted them. 
He just put little points and lines out there from time to time to push them in the right direction and to bring the attention to their spiritual walk with God. And he taught them even formally God's truth, quietly, humbly, effectively. I'm just learning how hard he worked to gain the confidence of little kids. This is amazing to me, but he, I've understood that he would work ahead of time to break down the barriers and gain the confidence of the children who would be in his class. He was thinking in that way. Not just those in his classes, but those who were going to be in his class soon because he wanted to be on the page with them when they got to his class. He wasn't a great formal teacher as such, but he knew a lot more about teaching than many good teachers know. And that's that it's about communicating and having the student trust you. Well, when you're dealing with a kindergartner, there's a little bit of work to do there. And he would purposefully work to break down those barriers in the most appropriate ways. He loved kids, and I think he just kind of discovered that in our church. I remember a caroling activity, I believe two winters ago, and somehow Brad and I were in the same van, and as I was getting into the driver's seat, Brad was walking in behind into the van, and he could have chosen at that point pretty much any seat, any place that he wanted to choose. And I remember him very specifically seeing a young child and sitting right next to that kid. And he started right in, asking questions, interacting. And, and, and there, just this, now, it would be a lot more today, and I don't want to read back into it, but I do recall just for that split second of wishing he'd sat next to me. He's a great guy to talk to, so much fun. But I thought, that's good. And that's Brad. And we did talk many times. But I thought, of all the people he could choose to sit with, he sits next to that kid. And he starts talking and interacting on a level. It wasn't goofing around, but was really discipling. I mentioned at the funeral yesterday, all four, perhaps I mentioned this, that all four of my children were taught by this man, and I'm so thankful that they had that opportunity. And I held one next to me with tears in his eyes who said, That man taught me so much. How many adults do your kids know who would say something like that about them? I was in his class this morning talking to the kids and talking to others uh, yesterday. Two specific lessons that Mr. Jameson taught in his class, which were mentioned to me by the kids on their own, were two attributes of God. The first is that God is incomprehensible. I remember that word coming home as Mr. Jameson spent a lot of time to get first graders to say that word, incomprehensible. And you know what the other one was? God is our refuge. 
That's stunning. You put those two together, and that's a sermon for right now. He is incomprehensible. His ways are beyond our ways. His wisdom is greater than our wisdom. We will never fully understand the purposes of God. But that same God who is incomprehensible is our refuge. Run into his arms. We're only beginning to recognize, I think, what an influence this man has had for the truth of God on our church. But it alerts me to the reality that faithfulness has its effects even when it is not recognized. And I think we did recognize his faithfulness on many levels. I know I recognized it consistently, but I don't know that we fully recognize the faithfulness with which he carried out his duties until we all begin to pool together our stories and realize his uniqueness. But let us be challenged by that in his life. Faithfulness, consistency, pressing forward in the cause of Christ week after week after week has its effects even when no one notices. I don't know why Brad Jameson died. I have no idea precisely what God was seeking to accomplish through this tragedy. I have no idea why God linked this tragedy so closely to the Bergam accident. I don't know. What we do know is that God exercises absolute sovereign control over all things. We know that God is working all things, including this tragedy, to accomplish our eternal sanctification. We know the pain we are suffering now will not compare with the glory that God is working through this. We know God is supplying divine comfort and grace to endure this trial. And we know God wants us to take Brad's life to heart and to be challenged by his faithfulness. And we know that at this moment, Brad is reveling in the presence of the Lord. His faith has been made sight. I truly believe that the joy in his heart this moment overwhelmingly outweighs all of our collective grief. Our grief is temporal and it is assuaged by God's comfort. His joy right now is eternal and it is full of glory. Let us too run with patience the race that is set before us until we, like Brad, enter into the presence of our Savior, free of all condemnation and liberated from all sorrow forever and ever. May we wait. May we wait on God until Jesus takes us home and enter into his presence with the saints that have gone before. What a glad reunion that day will be. May God allow us to be faithful until it comes. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, our hearts are filled with 
heaviness. God, we also thank you that you're holding them up with hope. In one sense, we just want to ask your forgiveness to even need to say these things. But God, our faith is weak. We need to hear it again. And indeed, every last one of us needs to walk from here and believe it. And believe it day in and day out. But I pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts and draw us close to yourself to see this life for what it is and not to be confused by the mirage that Satan presents to us over and again that this life is all there is. And if we lose any piece of it, we've lost eternity. We rest today, Father, in the fact that Jesus Christ has borne the curse for us, has given us eternal life, and nothing can take it away. I pray for anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray that you would bring the reality of death to their mind and allow such individuals to come to understand the death of Christ, the payment of sin, and the hope in eternal life. Bring them to that light today, we pray, and use us to spread your word this week as we are faithful to that calling. In Christ's name I pray, amen.